There's three Bible readings today. Uh, the first one's from John chapter 20, and the last two verses from uh, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then John chapter 21, verses 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And then lastly, uh, today's Bible passage, uh, verse, uh, 1 John, verses 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard and we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Our gracious, loving, heavenly Father, we thank you so much. As we gather here as your people, you now speak to us through this word. And so we pray that you give us ears to hear, that you would give us hearts to receive your word, that you would give us minds that would be alert ready and sustained to hear these, these words, and that this word would be implanted and then overflow in joy as we fellowship and grow and build each other up together here. Father, we ask that you'll bless our time and that you'll bless this word in Jesus' precious and beautiful name. Amen. If you were to die tonight, can you know with certainty that you are going to be with Jesus in heaven for eternity? How would you answer that question? Hold that thought for a moment. Imagine this new scenario. You're at school, you're at uni, uh, or your workplace. You're catching up with a friend who is Catholic. You sit down for lunch, and you're chatting about light stuff. The weather, what happened on MasterChef last night... They pause for a moment, take a short breath, and they say to you, hey, you're a Christian, right? But you're not Catholic. So tell me, what's the difference between me and you? How would you respond? If you start with saying, well, we believe we're saved by grace through faith, then you might be right, but they won't actually get it. See, a Catholic would actually also say, that they are saved by grace through faith. You might say that we believe that it's in the Bible alone that we find salvation. 
and in Jesus alone that we find salvation. And they would actually probably agree with you as well. But there is one word that will stump them. There is one word that will bring out the biggest difference between Roman Catholicism and biblical Christianity. And that word is assurance. You ask your Catholic friend, if you were to die tonight, can you know with certainty that you'll be with Jesus in heaven for eternity? And a good Catholic will ever and only ever say, I hope so. They can never say yes. A biblical Christian, in answer to that same question, can always and with confidence say yes. Now why? Why can a Christian be so confident? How can they know this with certainty? What evidence can they show that their assurance is not misplaced. Can you say with certainty, yes? These are the questions that John answers in this little book that we're beginning today. Over the next nine weeks, we'll be looking at why a Christian can have assurance and how they can have this assurance. John will also spell out what evidence shows that you can have this assurance as well. Well, 1 John was written by the Apostle John, uh, who also wrote the Gospel of John, the letters of 2 and 3 John, as well as the book of Revelation. Now, we're not exactly sure who he was writing to in this letter. Uh, Most likely, it's the same churches in that Asia Minor area that he wrote to in the book of Revelation. Asia Minor is the current area of modern-day Turkey. Now, we can tell from the letter that he was writing to Christians who were struggling They were struggling with knowing whether or not their faith was enough. And in this letter, he mentions a few times his reasons for writing. Probably the key one is right at the end in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He's writing to believers, he's writing to Christians, and he wants to give them assurance. This whole letter is written so that they may have assurance that they can know with certainty that they are saved. So what could have happened to create an environment where Christians are now doubting their own salvation? In the letter we learn that there's a small group of people who have left this church. They were straying into false teaching and were teaching false doctrine and it was having an impact. They were teaching, their teaching had strayed from what John and the apostles had taught. Their teaching about Jesus and his nature had changed. And they were offering a new secret knowledge available for anyone who would follow after them. There also seems to be a bit of a problem of Christians losing steam. The flame of devotion to Jesus was just beginning to flicker out. And so they were dropping their standards and becoming lax in their behavior. And for this young church, these shaky waters were stirring up and people were now losing their footing. So John writes to ground their feet safely in the gospel of Jesus so they can know and feel safe and secure in their faith. In these opening four verses, John says two main things with four sub points. He speaks about what he and his fellow apostles witnessed 
and then he tells them why he's writing to them. So let's have a look at the first point. First, he tells them what he saw. Notice in verse 1, the words witness, saw, heard, touched. Right at the start, John is making a very clear statement about the reliability of his eyewitness testimony. See, the Christian faith is not built on legend or myth. It is not a religion based on one person's testimony or interpretation. John is saying that he and others were eyewitnesses to the things that happened. And what did he see? At the end of verse 1, the word of life. Now, his opening, verse, his opening words in these verses echoes the opening lines of his gospel. In the beginning was the word. Here, John says, that which was from the beginning. He's making a clear reference to Jesus. John the other, and the other apostles saw everything concerning Jesus. John makes a big claim right here at the start. He's making a claim that our faith is based on real and true facts. And notice the fourth word in that sentence, in that verse. We have heard, we have seen, we have looked, and we have touched. That fourth sense word there. The word touched is an interesting word to insert here. It's probable that John says this specifically because he's pushing against a particular false teaching. The false teaching was probably an early version of what later became known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism taught that physical matter was evil compared with the spiritual, which was good, right? Basic idea, matter is bad, spiritual is good. Now, one particular form of Gnosticism taught that while Jesus was fully divine, he only appeared to be a human. Because physical matter is bad, the physical body was evil, Jesus, being fully God, would never have inhabited a human body. Now, this sounds very academic. It sounds like, you know, what kind of a, a heresy is this? But this heresy is actually still influencing the church even today. One example can be found in this seemingly innocent Christmas carol, Away in a Manger. You know that one? Uh, it's a classic children's Christmas carol. In the second verse, we, you sing these words. The cattle are lowing, or they're mooing, or making cow sounds. The baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. That last bit, no crying he makes. What sort of human baby would not wake and cry when they are awakened by loud noises? You ask any of the parents here, right? There's, that's never happened in human history. Right, Mel, who's in the back room there, I think. She's got a little baby girl who's just turned one. Right? Really troublesome sleeper. And the other day, we're neighbours, and the other day there was a, one of my other neighbours, a car pulled up and it was just honking their horn. And I messaged Mel going, what the heck? And she said, if that person doesn't stop honking, I will kill them. <laughs> right? Do not wake my baby. Because all babies wake up at noise. That line there in this song is actually informed by the heresy that Jesus was God, but not human. Now, there are other examples of Gnosticism even today, but we'll come back to, to that at the end. For now, John is making his point clear. Concerning Jesus, we saw him, we heard him teach, we touched him because he had a real physical body and he was a real physical person. 
Now this overlaps with the next point that Jesus made that Jesus was made manifest. He became flesh and dwelled among us. Again, John is stressing the real and historical reality that Jesus actually came into this world. Now, in God's providence, we have just finished the Gospel of Mark. Right? Mark wrote his gospel most likely uh, as a as a disciple of Peter. Right? And so Mark's gospel has the flavor of Peter's eyewitness all over it. And so the Gospel of Mark is that first-hand account from the eyewitness to Jesus. Now John here is saying something very similar in his letter. Another preacher on this passage puts it well. He's saying, John is saying this, that behind every one of these tactile statements are three plus years of personal experience with the God of this universe who became man in the person of Jesus Christ. I am an eyewitness. I listened to him. I gazed on him. I touched him to such an extent that I virtually memorized him. I testify to the reality of Jesus. Through him, I found eternal life. And I've been preaching this life now for more than 50 years. And in this letter, I am preaching this good news of Jesus to you also. John is writing this so that you can be confident that the gospel, about the gospel of Jesus, that we can know him and what it means to be a Christian. Now, why, why this heavy repetition on his eyewitness testimony? And again, it's to contrast with the false teachers. John saw and touched the real deal, the eternal word of life who entered into our world in blood, flesh, and bones. Those other guys, they don't know what they're talking about. Now, what might be obvious to us wasn't obvious for these Christians. And John needs to spell it out because these false teachers were causing division. They were luring some people away to follow after them. And so John reminds them that these things they saw about Jesus are being proclaimed to them and written to them for two reasons. The first is so that, in verse 3, is so that they would have true and proper proper fellowship. Fellowship with him and with the other apostles and fellowship with God. John says in verse 3 that they have true fellowship with God the Father and the Son, and if they listen to him then they will share in this fellowship as well. Fellowship here means more than just hanging out with each other. It means more than just eating food together. When we say, let's enjoy fellowship together, what are we really saying? When the Bible speaks about fellowship, it speaks about deep personal relationships with a shared common goal. Our fellowship is to be personal and intimate, with the common goal of testifying to the word of life. See, the only way to begin having true fellowship is to start with the gospel, with a clear articulation of what we believe. For John's readers, they knew of the false teachers who broke fellowship with them, who left the church they were leading and were leading some others astray as well. But theirs was not a true fellowship because they did not have the true gospel. Now, we we need to be really careful here. We need to be really careful about who we declare to have true fellowship with. Not everyone who claims the name of Christian is one. Sorry, Christian. Not every author in Kurong should be read or recommended. Not every preacher online should be retweeted or shared. 
Start with the true gospel. If you start with proper belief, John is saying, then you will have fellowship with us and you are a part of the body of Christ. Fellowship with John and the apostles is crucial because they have fellowship with God, the Father, and his Son, Jesus Christ. So here's the point. Knowing, understanding, and believing the proper gospel puts you in fellowship with God and his true messengers. It's the true gospel. The true gospel is offering true relationship with God. And this fellowship with God and the apostles also creates genuine, loving, accountable fellowship with the church. Now, closely tied to true fellowship is true joy. The gospel brings us vertical relationship with God, horizontal relationship with each other, and true joy and eternal joy. John says in verse 4, he's writing this letter to these Christians for the completion of their joy. Right, our there, he says in verse 4, reads firstly as though John is just referring to himself and the apostles, but it's probably better to read it as inclusive of John's readers and believers everywhere. He writes so that these Christians and us even here today will have proper fellowship with God, with them, and with each other. And he writes so that their joy will be complete. I got asked the other day, what is the difference between joy and happiness. I think happiness to me sounds like it's dependent on outward circumstances, right? Which is why our world chases after a change of circumstances so much. If you could only change your circumstances, then you'll find happiness and contentment. Christian joy is much deeper and richer. Joy describes genuine satisfaction intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. Joy is the presence of Jesus in our lives through the Holy Spirit. Joy lifts us up no matter what our outward circumstances. And the strength to do that comes from God alone. Now you'll know you've got real joy when what is happening around you does not shake your core foundations. When your trust and your faith in Jesus is enough to steady you, you might be anxious about your exam results. Well done, students, for getting through exams. You might have lost your job. You might have to suffer the pain of losing a loved one. But what keeps you steady, what keeps your feet firm, is the rock-solid trust that you have in Jesus. And that is joy. John writes, so you can have this unshakable joy in your life. Here in this little part, this final bit in verse 4, you can really see John's pastoral heart coming through. He's writing to a church that he dearly loves, to people that he dearly loves, as their elder and pastor, and his goal in writing to them is to give them assurance so that it will overflow in fellowship and joy. Now, as a pastor myself, I find this highly encouraging. My job, is, as your pastor, is to seek the completion of your joy. How do I do that? I preach the gospel. I counsel you towards gospel-shaped living. 
I pray for the gospel to be embedded in your heart more and more each day and work to see this overflow in joy and fellowship with others. The false teachers were trying to persuade these Christians that joy could be found apart from the gospel, that it was actually found with them, their secret, their workshops and products. John is saying that fullness of joy is found in the gospel and in the brothers and sisters who share life with God by faith in Jesus. If you trust Jesus, fellowship with God, and fellowship with God's people, you are already enjoying a life of joy And in the future, there will be fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. In these opening four verses, we have a very simple message. I, John, saw Jesus. I knew him personally. I am writing to you so that you will have proper fellowship with God and each other, and so that your joy will be complete. So, what do we do with these four verses this morning? I think there are three things that we need to walk away with. First, We need to praise God that he has revealed himself through Jesus. It is utterly astonishing that God has made himself known, that he's revealed the source and fountain of all joy and eternal life in his son Jesus. He saw us in our rebellion and sin and said, I will show them how much love and grace there is in me. And praise God that this revelation was in the real person and being of Jesus Christ. Our faith and trust is in a real person. And he is worth putting all your trust in. Some of you know Colin Buchanan. The singer and songwriter of lots of children's songs that we often sing even here at church. A couple of years ago, I got to meet him personally. One of my favorite moments. Colin also writes more adult albums, and one of his songs, Real Hope, was written in response to one of his friends who said that they no longer believed in the resurrection, but they still wanted to cling on to some sort of faith. And so Colin wrote these words, was a real birth in a real stable, in a real dusty Judean town, and a real mother nursed her precious baby, and a bunch of wide-eyed shepherds gathered round. Real angels sang glory. Real hope was born that day. I bet all I have on Jesus. I will throw myself on him. The one who died a real death for real sin. I bet all I have on Jesus throughout eternity. I will marvel at the real hope my Savior won for me. Now, those words perfectly capture what John is trying to encourage in us today. Real hope, real joy, real fellowship with God is found in trusting the real Jesus. Praise God for that. Number two, we have this revelation and testimonies written in Scripture. God has given us a book. He could have given us any other means of knowing him. But he gave us this one. Words inspired by God that carry weight and meaning. And this has been written for your joy. Where are you looking for joy in your Christian life? The next Hillsong album? The next camp? The next moment you get to listen to your favorite preacher on podcasts? These are not bad things, but are you neglecting God's intended building block for your joy? 
the Bible? John's readers were doubting their faith. And I think one of the reasons why we wrestle with doubt and are unsure of our faith when we boil it down, probably one of the reasons is because we do not know the word. He gave you a book. He has spoken and revealed himself through it. So how can you know God better? Here. How can you overcome and wrestle with your doubts? Here. You know, in the past, people have visited our church and said that we focus a lot on the Bible. In fact, that we're all about the head and not the heart. And I want to be really clear, as John is clear for us here today, the Word is written for us to complete our joy. The word is meant to be read, fully engaged with our, mind, with our minds. It is meant to be implanted into our hearts. And the word connects us to God in fellowship with him and is meant to overflow into joy. And that leads to our final point of application. We need to make sure that our experience of fellowship and experience of joy is rooted deeply in God's word. One of the errors in John's day was this idea that spiritual was good and physical was bad. This idea is still with us today. And you hear it when people elevate spiritual interpretation and spiritual experiences over basic Bible reading. Looking carefully at the text, interpreting the Bible with the basic tools of Bible reading is considered human interpretation. Like we're imposing our ideas onto the Bible. What's better then is to experience the Spirit experience God. It's a very spiritual sounding argument, but I don't think John will ever allow it. If we base our fellowship on spiritual experiences, it will ultimately cause division because our experiences are always going to change and be different. At some point, our experiences will be radically different and then something has to give. Either our fellowship will need to change or we or what we believe will need to change. You, you cannot sustain fellowship on experience alone. John knows this well. The only thing that will sustain true and lasting fellowship and joy is the gospel as written. We need to understand what is written. We need to know and have the real truth. And that is what grounds our fellowship and our joy. Three things. Praise God that he reveals himself to us in Jesus. Praise God that he has written this down in a book. Every generation can now have access to this revelation. And let us ground our fellowship and joy in the gospel. Now there is so much more to be said, but I'm going to let John say that in the coming weeks. For now, let me pray. Father in heaven, We praise you and thank you so much that in our rebellion, in our sin, in our fight against you, in the darkness that we have pulled over ourselves, you brought in light. You sent the eternal word. You manifested him into this world. We praise you and thank you that this revelation, your son, has been written down for us in your word, the Bible. We thank you so much that we have access to you and that you speak to us. So Father, help us to ground our fellowship, help us to build our fellowship 
on this word. Help us to renew our joy through your word. And help us to defend and protect each other through the gospel that we have heard from you. And we pray you'll do this so that we may persevere for our eternal joy. In Jesus' name, amen.